Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer you live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet, and now MIT Sloan Review, a global sought-after keynote speaker, and, of the most, and one of the most influential business and innovation thought leaders on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashar, one of the top followers on Twitter on, for CIOs, CMOs, and for business advice. It's also on a lot of broadcasts. We see him on business TV, especially in Canada and the U.S., and more importantly, one of the big... Uh, one of the big evangelists for technology and humanity. So, hey, what do we have today? We're on episode 164. Can you believe this? <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, it's our privilege to have Manesh Gold, co-founder, chief executive officer of TrustFear, pioneer of next generation relationship analytics. Under his stewardship, the company has received exponential growth, including successful partnering with many of the world's leading technology platforms, such as IBM and, and my company, Salesforce. Uh, Manesh has over 20 years of experience in the software and services sector, having started his career as pri at PricewaterCoopers Strategic Change Consulting Practice. He then went on to become an investment director at PwC Venture Partners, the firm's London-based principal investment unit. Manesh believes strongly in contributing to the technology ecosystem. For several years, he chaired the Online Trust Alliance, OTA, an industry alliance formed to protect the vitality of online ecosystems promote individual privacy and best practices, which enhance trust in e-commerce globally. He also serves on the board of the Asian Cloud Community Association. I encourage you to follow Manesh on Twitter at M-A-N-I-S-H-G-O-E-L. Welcome Manesh to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much, Bella, thank you. Hey Manesh, so what's going on here? We're talking about anything from automation, AI, right? We've got all these digital businesses coming up, right? People are engaged in these relationships with people they know. We jump into cars. We have no idea who the people are on the other end, right? So we're seeing massive automation at the same time. And as automation continues to accelerate, we're like, why do we even bother with relationships? These things just happen. They're super transactional. Why should we even care? That's a really good question. Look, you know, at our end, our tagline is because relationships matter. I think with all the automation that's going on, relationships are actually even more important than before. You know, as you, told, as you said, like there's all these new technologies that are out there, all connected and all interconnected. You know, you talk about the IoT, the Internet of Things. We kind of look at it and say, look, the Internet of People still beats the Internet of Things. The IoT is just as important. And IoT is all about relationships. So, you know, and on a serious note, when, you're when things are transactional, there's one, there's one aspect to it. When you're understanding relationships, it's a very different aspect. People still trump, still trump uh, machines right now. Yeah, no, those human resource, those human relationships are very interesting, right? And they're very unpredictable, right? Machines work in a very, very defined manner. Um, and, and, and we definitely do see some interesting things there uh, around that area. Manesh, yeah. when, when, you, when you advise other CEOs in terms of the importance of relationships, uh, what do you talk about in terms of the importance of core values and guiding principles that companies need to adhere to and follow and commit in order to build long-lasting relationships? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. I think relationships, relationships are, to, to us, relationships are, are foundational when it comes to trust. And trust is such an important part of the way business gets done. You know, from a trust perspective, without a relationship, you can't have trust. Just because you have a relationship doesn't mean that there is trust. So for the advice that we give to CEOs is this, you know, there's a, there's a really interesting asset that exists in every organization, and it's the collective relationship network that exists. I have a thesis, which is that collective relationship network for an organization theoretically should be on balance sheet. And the reason it should be is it's an asset that's continuously built up. And you know, when people come and people go, they bring their relationships. And you know, the old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. We think it's not only what you know, but also who you know. So as an asset, this is a collective asset that really, it hasn't gone on balance sheet because it hasn't been able to be measured. So our approach to that is measure and understand where those relationship networks are. Once you do that, what you have is the ability to leverage this in a way that allows you to do a couple of things, really transform. A lot of clients of ours are working around digital transformation. 
this starts to inform digital transformation because it's a lens that you have that no one else, you know, that you haven't been able to see before. The second thing is it's all about making sure that when you're driving this through, what you're getting is you're measuring, measuring where the real relationships are that hold either organizations together or hold your own organization together. Manish, I'm going to have a little fun with this relationship analogy yeah. and, and the value and the assets that's going on here. So, so okay, so, so do, do relationships in this, in this ledger system, do they decay over time? Like, does the asset have a decaying value and or increasing value uh, oh. in the model? Yeah. So, like, for example, a relationship just dies over time or it's just not as important because contextually, no one cares on that value. But some values might come back in, in style and, and suddenly there's a, there's a greater market demand for that value. Do you, do you account for things like that? Yeah, it, within the technology, absolutely. What, what for us, strong active relationships are even are the most important asset that you actually have. We're the strongest, we're the strongest, we're the, we're the most active relationships. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The algorithms allow it to, to decay over time. And, and so it does. Doesn't mean they go away, but it does mean that they, the value decays. Right. But if you don't engage, right, you basically, you be, become less you know, relevant over time because your frequency of engagement drops. Therefore, you're less relevant. That value is overdone. So nobody cares anymore. You're accounting for those types of factors as you're oh. doing those kind of social, social kind of capital, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, so when you do this, though, people often get confused, right? What's the difference between people analytics and relationship analytics. Because people are thinking, oh, this could be like that social credit score in that country that we hear about. Yeah. So people analytics, so what relationship analytics is, it's a subset, if you will, of people analytics. So of, of workforce analytics. And what it does is it uses the science, that's, it's a well-established science called ONA, or Organizational Network Analytics. It's been around for ages, and it's been typically done via surveys. Our approach to it is using, uh, using what we call digital exhaust or understanding the communication collaboration systems within an organization and mining them ethically and in a legally compliant way to ensure what we're doing is understanding where the overall relationship network of that organization is. And the approach that we use is we effectively, as I said, uh, legally compliant. We, we basically, we're fully GDPR compliant. We make sure that from a privacy perspective, we never touch content. We never analyze subject lines. All we're looking at is the way that people are interacting and the behaviors around interaction without touching content, right? So for people that are on Twitter that always see these node XL graph kind of things, that's basically what we're talking about, the organizational network analysis. And then you guys apply your secret sauce against that. Hold on. And you know, for us, it's this. It's about doing that. Imagine doing that at scale right within an, within an enterprise, within an organization. So taking that whole thing from an organization's communication flows. You um, mentioned trust as uh, an important core value, yeah. foundational to building long-lasting long relationships. And uh, um, uh, a lecturer at Oxford, uh, Rachel Botsman, wrote, wrote up recently a book about trust. And she said it's capability plus character. And she put capability into competence and reliability and character into integrity and benevolence. Do you think that... Um, being able to measure trustworthiness in a social graph associated with first, second, third degree connections ultimately is information that's not only useful to understand the strength of a community and network, but perhaps over time, even a tool used to recruit talent into your business where you're measuring uh, your impact on the network best based on a trustworthiness score. Yeah, it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting question. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that what we're measuring is what we call the first order of that. To have trust, you need to have a relationship. The stronger your relationship, the more likely you are to have trust. I agree, though. At the end of the day, trust builds on top of a foundational element of having a relationship. You know, for an organization, understanding where that relationship network is, that's remained elusive to date. And really, that's what we're trying to do. It's, you know, it, again, I'll, I'll position this from a leadership perspective. Everyone talks about great leaders having good IQ and great EQ. We think there's another capability, which is something that we call RQ. It's the relationship quotient. It's their connectivity. Oh, yeah. And it's the IQ, EQ, and the RQ, which all come together to show from a, a leader's perspective or a trusted leader's perspective how well they're performing. At the end of the day, people, it's been really difficult to date to measure what that RQ is. That's what technology like ours actually uh, does. I really like that. I'm going to use that. I really it does. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I know Jack Ma has uh, LQ, love quotient, uh, that ah. he speaks to. He says you can be successful, successful with EQ, IQ, but if you want to be respected, you need LQ as well. 
And I suspect the more loved you are, the more relationships and connections. How do your customers use your data? How, can you talk to us about companies that are growing faster than their competitors because they're leveraging insights from Trustphere? Yeah, totally. Look, I mean, so our clients are using this in two big ways. One is to really transform the customer experience the, the sort of within the sales function to really drive out that whole notion of CX. Uh, the second one is, is very much around trying to, uh, you know, is around their EX. So understanding how the, from a workforce analytics perspective, how an organization functions. From a, from a customer perspective, it means better understanding customer engagement levels, understanding you know, using CRM systems even more effectively by ensuring there's data. The data that's otherwise elusive sits within the CRM, is brought automatically into the CRM, allows them to better manage customers, understanding where they're neglecting customers, increase retention, increase the effectiveness of their sales teams. On the employee side, so what, what our clients are using this for is uh, identifying hidden stars, Leadership and making leaders, allowing leaders to build better social capital and basically manage their social capital more effectively. Um, tactically, they're using it for accelerating onboarding. So when new staff come in, how do you accelerate onboarding? And the, the other big one is around diversity and inclusion. So for us, one of the big areas that we're very excited about is that, you know, with DNI, I'm a big believer and a big proponent of DNI, and it's not the diversity part, it's the inclusiveness uh, part of the DNI story that I think is much more important. Uh, it's very difficult to measure inclusiveness. How do you measure it? Easy to report on diversity, much more difficult to measure inclusiveness. What, what we're able to do is networks give you a very clear lens on whether individuals or within or whether teams are being inclusive or not. So our clients are using that. And what they're using it for is really to drive performance as well as to drive better social corporate responsibility within the organization as well. That's awesome. Yeah. That's wow, that's actually a very interesting point, right? Because you can, based on engagement levels, you can tell who's being included or not or how they're being included or contextually when they're included, right? And what some of the drivers are. And, and then you can determine whether that's, you know, accidental, um, intentional, uh, or just, you know, completely um, driven by self-interest. <laughs> I mean, those are all there. And, and just to add to that, what we're doing is we're identifying areas of unconscious bias. I think often enough from, from in that DNI equation, the problem is uh, people are often not included. I won't say excluded. They're not included because of an unconscious bias that exists. So well, we, they, went to a, they went to the wrong university or they root for the wrong football club or, you know, all these kind of factors. They, <laughs> they drink the wrong beer. I they mean. don't they drink the wrong beer. That's a, that's a definite reason. <laughs> they go to the wrong pub, you know. No, it's kidding. No, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely a lot of sense in terms of uh, what you're saying. Speaking of building, uh, you know, uh, a world-class, strong network, you've constructed a... a incredibly strong advisory board, Adam Grant, Bo uh, Boris uh, Goisberg, David Green, just to name a few. Yeah. Man, you sound like you're name dropping there, Vala. I know. Go ahead. A lot of credit. So give advice to CEOs that need to surround themselves with incredibly smart, committed, passionate uh, advisors. How did you do that? And what can CEOs do to attract really talented individuals to help companies grow? Okay. Yeah, first stage is find someone who's much smarter, find people who are smarter than you are. In my case, that was easy to do. So that's the first, the first criteria. <laughs> no, you find I love, it. I love that humility, I love that. <laughs> we find a group of people who are very passionate about, about, first of all, about engaging in the journey. Because particularly from a startup perspective, building an advisory board around, around us, you have to, they need to want to engage in the, in the journey. The second thing you're always looking for is people who aren't naysayers. Right. So everyone, what you're looking for is people who are actually going to who are going to critically challenge you and can contribute back into the overall ecosystem. For us, the other thing is it's about who has the networks, who has the networks to be able to drive things forward. So, you know, at the end of the day, that's that's what it's about. But really engaging them as part of an overall journey that you have is critical. Selecting them to, to make sure that they can contribute to that journey is a very powerful way of bringing that together that's terrific that's terrific you have world-class givers on your advisory board so kudos to you i'm sure you're learning a lot <laughs> oh yeah for sure so so as we think about this right you know this is happening in the corporate environment you know the purpose is to make sure that you know you support a whole bunch of different initiatives right from making sure we're getting the best out of our employees making sure people are engaged they're happy with their work uh you know people are productive on the sales front we're capturing dni issues um at what point though does all this become I'd say maybe it's a little bit big brother. What's the line between privacy and consent in the corporate environment? 
Yeah, look, I think this is really good. It's a really good question. I mean, you know, again, um, I, I, I think that Bala mentioned right up front, one of the things I did uh, for a number of years, I chaired the Online Trust Alliance. And what that was, is a, it's a not-for-profit dedicated specifically to the protection of individual privacy online. That's part of the DNA of what we have all the way through. And when we looked at this challenge originally, it was like, how do we start, how do we make sure we can mine this, this incredibly valuable asset, which exists in an organization? Accenture estimates there's about $3 trillion worth of value that's trapped in data. How do you do it ethically and in a legally compliant way? Legal, legal compliance is kind of what we call our low water mark. You absolutely need to be privacy compliant. So as I said, GDPR compliance is incredibly important. We've mapped to that. But the ethical compliance is actually even more important. Mm. And let me, let me explain. What we do is we make sure that when we're putting this into an organization, first of all, it's, there is a level of transparency that goes through to the employees about what you're doing, which data you're using, what you're doing, what you're using the data for, and what you're not using the data for, and giving employees the ability to either ask more questions or opt out of the process. So that's one thing that we, we work with our clients to ensure we always do. Do, do you get penalized for opting out? So you don't get penalized for opting out. Right. We okay. don't realize what we, what we, and you know, it, what it does is it impacts the graph a little bit, but from our perspective, letting people, people must, people have got to feel comfortable that the, the data that they're providing is being used for the right purpose. In fact, going back to that Accenture report, 92% of employees said that they would be happy for their, they did a survey of 14,000 people, 92% uh, of employees would be happy for their employer to analyze the data provided there was a benefit back to them. And that's the other thing. How do you find a benefit? You ensure there's a benefit back to the individual. Now, is there FOMO for not being included? Ah, that one's harder to tell. I think that what we find is most people, most people actually are curious about the data about themselves. We're all fundamentally a little narcissistic, and you know what? Provided we can understand a little bit more data about ourselves, I think it's useful. The second thing is it helps people do it. You know, I'm a big believer in this notion of insights should be not just for an analytics team, but should be given back to individuals. Democratize the data, get it back down to individuals, and let them do the right thing with you know, help them perform better. As a CEO of a technology company, a, a growing technology company that's, that's uh, you know, a data-driven, insight-driven organization, I'm sure you're often asked your point of view on artificial intelligence mm. and the fact that, you know, more and more organizations, individuals uh, can rely on algorithms for prediction and recommendations based on thousands of decision vectors that come into play. What are your thoughts in terms of impact of AI and use of AI specific to TrustSphere in terms of enhanced capabilities two, three, five years from now? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. I think, you know, if we take, if we take a macro view, I think we're starting to see the real impact of AI. It has, it, has, um, it has the potential from a future of work perspective to be incredibly pervasive in ways that we probably, even as a, as a community of technologists, haven't fully fathomed yet. So I'll say that, and we need to be careful because I think there needs to be a very strong ethical, uh, ethical overlay in terms of the use of AI. Um, so as we don't institutionalize bias, for example, into what we, what we do. Um, at our end, uh, you know, my view on AI as it stands today, and I think we, AI for me stands for augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. And I'm a really big believer in making sure that we can use the power of technology to allow people to make smarter decisions by giving them access to a telemetry around data that they don't have access to, but allow them to process this in a way that, that as I said, ethically, as I said, ethically and legally, in a legally compliant way, helps them to make smarter decisions, unbiased decisions or less biased decisions at least, um, as well as fuller decisions, which allows data to play a role in, uh, you know, in, in making smart business decisions overall. Terrific point of view. Terrific. Ray, you on mute? Nope. Ray is on so mute. So, question for you. So, question for you. Where are where are you guys located, headquarters wise? You seem yeah. very distributed. We we are relatively distributed. I think you know we so um headquarters for us is New York. So we're based out of New York, uh, but we have offices in London as well as in uh, in Singapore. Okay. So, what has who has the better tech scene for startups? What's more supportive, New York, Singapore, or London? No, you're going to get me into big trouble. You see, I can't I come and have favorites on that. I have to be you all his favorite child. Come on. That's <laughs> terrible. Name, it's your, terrible. name your favorite child. Tell us which yeah. one. I think they're all different. I, I think no, they, they are. are they're very different. different. Uh, yeah, they are very different. I think that the, I, think, I still think that San Francisco, that Silicon Valley still has a, a greater depth of, from a technology perspective. It all depends. For us, if you ask me why I've chosen each of them, we would want to be very close to the Asian market originally. And that's why we, had, we were out of Singapore. 
Uh, we think that's a huge growing market and it's, it's exciting to be there. Uh, London is the center of Europe at the moment. Let's not even talk about Brexit for a moment. Uh, is, uh, is, uh, you know, is a great place to be able to, to, to see some of the innovation there. And I think from New York, a lot of our clients are on the East Coast and you know, financial services and healthcare life sciences clients, it's a great place to be. That makes sense. We're here with Manish Gohl, CEO at Trustfear. You can follow him at Twitter, uh, at Manish, M-A-I-N-S-H-G-O-E-L. And you can hear us coast to coast on Disrupt TV show. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, terrific. Wow. You can learn I can understand. He's, he's one hour behind me. So uh, not, not too bad. Hopefully in time to get dinner. So. Yeah. London, Frankfurt, Boston. Wow. <laughs> we got quite a range. San Diego. We got a whole group in San Diego. So. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. So it's great to have our guest joining us uh, late in the evening and our co-host. So our next guest um, is Christopher Lockett, author and host uh, yeah, Chris pioneered dialogue podcast uh, called Follow Your Difference and Lock It on Marketing, number two and number three podcast, uh, business podcast on, on Apple Podcasts. So congratulations, he's crushing it. Chris is also co-author of two bestsellers, Niche Down and Play Bigger. Uh, he has been an advisor to 50 venture-backed startups is a venture capital limited partner and former three-time Silicon Valley public company CMO, entrepreneur, and, and uh, uh, an incredible thought leader. He's been called one of the best minds in marketing by Marketing Journal and a human exclamation point by Fast Company. <laughs> awesome. He served as CMO of Juggernaut Mercury Interactive, which was acquired by HP uh, for $4.5 billion and was founding uh, CMO of uh, internet consulting firm Fincent and CRM giant Vantive. Uh, in, in, in over 30 years in business, he's earned a PhD from School of Hard Knocks, experienced the bias of winning the pain of failure, and learned how to laugh about the whole thing. And he makes us laugh every time he comes on the show. Please follow Chris on Twitter at L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. Welcome back, Chris, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much, boys, for having me. It's wow, the, number, the, the top five, number two, number three on Apple. That is, like, amazing, dude. So congratulations. So there's 750,000 podcasts. That's amazing. <laughs> there was sure rub it in, rub it in. Where we outcharted Oprah. That was my favorite. Oh my god, Chris, you got yeah. there must be some some advise, weird break in the matrix or something. We need you to advise Ray and I. We we want to crack the top hundred. <laughs> we want to crack the top 500 at the rate we're going here. Uh, but hey, I remind everybody, we're live point. coast to coast here and now with the number two and number three top podcaster, Chris Lockett. Hey, so so. I'm going to ask you this, and this was really cool, though. I mean, you you got um, a, a major sitting pre former president to show up to an event, right? You've done some crazy things at startups like Jive, right? But everyone thinks they get branding now, right? They're all like, oh, we get it. We can do this. But what's the right way to help an organization see the bigger picture? Because people don't understand that branding is really deep, right? It's not something you just do once. It's not something they just run a campaign against. Like branding is the essence. It's the heart of an organization. So I'm going to answer that question. And can we also talk about the president of the Ukraine? Yes, we can. What do you know about that? <laughs> Where, what do you want to start with? The answer to your question? or what's you, not, I, I think I want to go with the uh, president of the Ukraine. Ukraine. That's a little bit more interesting. Let's start with that. Okay, so here's this thing I discovered. I mean, obviously, we're all paying attention to the news. I heard a, um, uh, some research this morning that suggests that 7 out of 10 Americans are paying close attention to what's going on right now. So I thought, well, like, who is this guy, this president of the Ukraine? So, you know, we have this incredible thing today called wikipedia right so i googled president of ukraine got to wikipedia and here's what i discovered the president of the ukraine is an actor who for many years three four five years something like that played on television on a very popular tv show the president of the ukraine <laughs> so an actor who played the president on TV, not only is the president of the Ukraine, but guess what? He, guess what his uh, win margin was? Seventy-three percent. Seventy-three percent of Ukrainians voted for a guy who they like to watch pretend to be the president and thought that may, will make him a good president. <laughs> Dude, talk about massive branding! That is amazing. 
Well, yeah. Hey, if it's not on TV, it's not happening, apparently. That is pretty amazing. Um, so wow. I guess you could say he had a great brand. Yeah. Oh, the other thing that was funny I read, um, he announced his candidacy on New Year's Eve at the exact same time that the uh, sitting president at the time was giving his like year-end State of the Nation oh. address, and he kind of blew him off TV. Tanya. Yeah. So there's an actor running Ukraine. I don't know what that has to do with anything that's going on in the United States. It just blew my mind. Well, you know, it's uh, he's got damn good writers that, that, that get branding, right? And, and really helping them understand, wait, what, what is that big picture? What's going on? But he uh, must look know. presidential. Let's hope he, he so. does. He does. He does look presidential. So I, I put up his picture. One out of 10 <laughs> eligible voters vote next year. That, that We can only hope for that. Since well, only, I don't know. It just uh, it means for sure. Then what if Oprah ran here, she'd win, or The Rock, or whatever. Like if if being popular on you know TV is yeah, the, this guy, <laughs> it looks presidential. What do you think? I, I think it looks presidential. We can start with that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm not sure about the haircut, but you know he's kind of a handsome guy. Oh, uh, he looks. I'm sure he did a great job playing the president, but I, I gotta believe being the president, and it's like the difference between playing a doctor and being a doctor. Come on, you love that when the TV doctors of America all show up on, on some, what is that, a Cigna commercial? Have <laughs> you seen that? <laughs> they all get together, uh, every friend, doctor you friend Aubrey seems to be sending, sending information and he was a comedian and a satirist, not just an actor. That makes it even more, I'll say flippin', Audrey, uh, Aubrey, <laughs> that makes it more flippin' funny. He was a comedian. This, it's like if Borat ran the country. Unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. So I want to well, go back to uh, uh, and you and, and former President Obama. In a, in a Twitter stream, you shared a photo with him, and he looked like he looked like he was enjoying the moment and really happy to be there. I felt there was an incredible, authentic smile on his face with the photo with you and him. And uh, so I want to learn about that. But I also want you to comment on something you tweeted a couple of hours ago. You said money is a byproduct of creating value and making a difference for others. Entrepreneurs who put money over people have their focus backwards. Value for others is the only path to enduring economic success. I thought that was brilliant advice. So I want you to expand on that, but also talk to us about hanging around with the former president. It must have been super <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, I didn't get to hang with him for very long. So I don't want uh, anybody to, as Archie Bunker said, misconstrue what I'm saying. It's not like, uh, you know, we went for a surf and knocked over a bunch of beers and, you know, etc. So, but I did get a little, a little moment with him for sure. And, um, you know, look, regardless of your politics, and I generally don't talk about politics, you know, amongst friends, <laughs> <laughs> but regardless of your politics, and I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, I think you have to admire the way the guy conducted himself. And I think most Americans thought, even if they disagreed with him, that, you know, he was generally trying to come from a good place. And I think I'll go as far as to say for sure that I think he did a bunch of great things. And, and I think he represented the country in a very honorable way. I think most Americans, even if you didn't like his policies, weren't waking up in the morning going, what's he going to do now? Right. There wasn't a lot of that going on then. And, um, you know, so, so I, you got to admire him from that perspective. What I can tell you about meeting him, um, he is very honorable. He is very genuine. Um, he, you know, everybody wants to compliment him, as did I. Mm. I thought long and hard about what I might say to him. And the thing I decided to say to Mbala was, thank you for your courage. Because for me, I think, and I think for a lot of Americans, and again, even Americans who didn't agree with his policies, it's hard not to call him a courageous man. He got bin Laden, right? He won the presidency. He won the presidency uh, with a very different kind of campaign than we're used to seeing and a very different in kind of campaign that we're seeing today on both sides, frankly. Yeah. And so I think he's an honorable man and a courageous man. And so that's why I said that. And, um, and he's got a great jump shot. I mean, believe it well, or not, hey, his hands are giant in person. Like he's got these yeah, giant yeah. hands and giant feet too. Like I, I have these, you know, I'm six feet, but my feet are 13, but he might have 14 feet. You know, he's yeah. got like a big, big ass feet and big hands. <laughs> yeah, you did like that. Smile. 
Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And advice to entrepreneurs, not focusing on money and actually focusing on adding value. Yeah. So the reason I put that out, there's sort of, this has been bugging me on multiple dimensions. On one dimension in, in at least part of the world that we all now live in the author, podcaster, dude world, which is a totally new place for me, of course. I, I, I'm just, just started in this. But what I notice is there's a whole segment of entrepreneur or self-helpy type of folks who, you know, you look at the tile for their, their, their podcast and it's them in front of a Bentley, in front of a plane, and, you know, all these idiots who like do selfie videos with their rented Lamborghinis, you know, the, I mean, these guys are ridiculous, right? And they're just, they seem to be popping up like, like, you know, that game whack-a-mole, like it's just, they're just showing, and they all spew the same stuff and they're, they're very, uh, I don't know, I think they're money grubbing and I think they're disgusting and just looking at them makes me want to take a shower. And, and so I think, look, having a goal of getting rich is a great goal. I'm a big believer in capitalism and, and achieving personal financial freedom is one of the greatest gifts I think you can give yourself. So I'm, I'm not being silly about that. I'm just talking about this sort of very disgusting, uh, flaunted in your face. Uh, so that's the first piece that's bugging me. It correlates with another thing that's evolved in Silicon Valley uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, when I came to Silicon Valley over 20 years ago, I would describe our in, the startup industry, if you want to call it that, as a craft industry. And um, we recently had Randy Komazar, uh, the legendary, you know, virtual CEO, the legendary Kleiner Perkins partner, former CEO of LucasArts. I mean, this guy's, uh, you know, he's a monk in Silicon Valley, right? And and he was talking about. Um, in the early days, Apple and that time frame, he was at Apple in those days, that, that there was an idealism about, about um, there he is, he's a handsome guy, um, uh, I like the hairdo a lot. Um, there was an ideal- hey, No use of products, low use on products. Yeah. Like <laughs> there was this view of Silicon Valley of more, he called it utopian view, sort of coming out of the hippie, like hippie meets, you know, the transistor and the microprocessor, right? And I, I, he, so he talked a lot about that and I sort of pushed him on a little, say, you know, is that really the feeling? And he said, yeah, you know, the technology industry that he grew up in was one where for the most part, people wanted to do good things. He, he said, this didn't really get going until the personal computer, right? Because there was sort of a, a personal creativity and productivity and sort of an opening up of opportunity. And there was a very sort of flower powery vibe to the whole thing, right? And he said, having been there, that that was a very real motivation and that the financial one, you know, existed too. We're not talking about Mother Teresa. So, but that the two things coexisted, it was incredibly powerful. And I think, Vala, we're in a place today in Silicon Valley where um, there's a lot of, quote, professional money here now. And I think there are, in the, if you look at venture capitalists, by way of example, there are value creation venture capitalists Many of them are former entrepreneurs themselves, or if not, they've, they've been in the game of helping entrepreneurs build legendary categories and companies. And, you know, they're sort of deeply rooted in that. And there's this notion that we're going to take some shared risk together. The entrepreneur's taking much more risk than we are. We're going to do things and we're going to try to build something of long-term enduring value. And that may sound Pollyanna or whatever to some people. But no, that's how it was. That's how that, it was. We lost that mission. And that's where I'm doing at. Good. That's where I'm at. And he said, there's now, in Randy's words, we have a more libertarian view that has a much more economic bent. So you see a lot of the companies today, what are they, what are they really doing? They're selling advertising, right? Apple wasn't selling advertising, right? Intel wasn't selling advertising. Microsoft wasn't, you know. And so uh, he just no noticed the shift from what he called the utopians to the libertarians. And so I just think, look, Money, making money is a wonderful motivation. God bless American capitalism all day long, all day long. And I think I would love to see our industry, particularly here in Silicon Valley and in other areas of, of hotbeds of, of uh, innovative startup ecosystems, remember that the most legendary companies are, are radically generous. They're creators of things that enable new possibilities or solve meaningful problems. And I think, look, and this again may make me sound like I've lived on the West Coast too long, but 
I think that also on a personal level, yeah. don't we want to go to bed every night feeling like, hey, I, I made a difference. In general, I, I'm a good person in the world. I'm, I'm, you know, my buddy Mike Maples Jr., the founder, co-founder of Floodgate Capital with Anne Mirako, he says, start or join a company worthy of your talent. And don't we all want to go to bed at night feeling like we made a difference? We're on a great team. Yeah. We're building awesome stuff. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're delivering some value in the world. Most of us want to feel that way. And so I think there's a little bit of a warping going on, whether it's on one side of the spectrum with the, with the you know, the Ty Lopez shyster guys in their planes and Lamborghini BS, or this sort of attitude in Silicon Valley that's maybe a, a little more mercenary and less missionary and professional money coming in that is more in the business of value capture as opposed to what I would call the craft VCs who are more in the uh, value creation business. And so, I don't know, I guess I tweeted that out. I was feeling like <laughs> I'd like to see more of a centering on value in the biggest Chris, sense of the word, if, if I could Chris, put it. I don't think it's the, I don't think they're libertarians. I, actually, what we went from is we went from ide ideologues, right, to libertarians, to mercenaries. The mercenaries all showed up post 2003, right? They figured there's a great way to make money out of this puppy. We stopped giving money. The startups stopped giving money and shares to their, to their early founders. Or, like they completely reduced that. Everything's become kind of a business. And the VCs are, I mean, I'm gonna, uh, I can't say those words here. Uh, we're in life. <laughs> the VCs are scared, right? They're worried about track records. So they're not doing their job. And we end up with all this crazy stuff around bro culture and bragging and like, you know, like selfies that make no sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, on trillion dollar venture funds and, you know, we just saw this stupidity with WeWork that's going on right now, or, you know, the ultimate stupidity of it all, of course, Theranos and, you know, and of, of course the bro culture we got to get to, and we have a huge diversity problem in Silicon Valley that we need to get on top of. And, you know, I think the experts tell me we're making some progress, but it, it sounds, it feels fairly incremental, but it's not that we don't have things to work on, but it's more the perspective, of, uh, you know, look, it's easy to be cynical. I'm a 51 year old man. I've been effed over more ways than I can count. I've lost more money than I will ever make. I have all the reason in the world to be angry, cynical, and bitter. And sometimes I am, but for the most part, <laughs> I'm not. I've chosen optimism, right? Because the future is more interesting than the past, the good or the bad about the past. And we have an opportunity to affect the future, all of us do, and particularly those of us who live and work in the kinds of areas that we live and work in. And so why not be optimistic? And why not be a little idealistic? And, and why not look at the facts that um, a te technology has enabled a massive breakthrough in the quality of life for human beings on the planet? There's just no arguing that. Are there downsides? Are there problems? Are there things to be concerned about? Absolutely. But make no mistake, anybody who doesn't think that the information technology revolution over the last 50 years or so hasn't made a massive positive uh, impact and contribution to humankind is just confused. Hey, Chris, this is this, we were originally going to have you on a panel and you don't fit on a panel. Um, and if you're still coming to our event at Connected I Enterprise. I for anybody I, else on the panel if Chris is on stage. <laughs> I, I told you, you, I did drink a little extra coffee, so I'm a little. <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm going to get back to you later, but I'm going to put you on main stage after lunch on, on, on Tuesday if you want to join us. This is our event where we bring 150 innovators, change agents, disruptors together to Half Moon Bay. I would love to. I've been, I've been in the past and I always love coming and you put on an amazing event and you're just one of those guys. I don't, not to get corny, but you know, I, I like hanging out with Ray. Let me put it that way. Hey, I love being on your show. So. <laughs> you you got to get Vala on your show. but uh, that, that hey, one I think show we tried. He, listen, he's busier than Barack Obama. I can <laughs> hang out with the president. <laughs> but I, can, I can barely get him on with him on my podcast. It's, it's hard. An honor and a privilege. I will make time. Oh, my goodness. My last question, Chris, you often led with the question, why fit in when you can stand out? So tell us, tell us, tell our audience, how do you follow your different? Tell us how we can stand out in a meaningful way where we're not showing off, we're not pretending, 
and we're practicing radical transparency and authenticity, but at the same time have the courage to be different. Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is, if your being legendary invalidates me, then you need me out of your life, right? <laughs> awesome. Oh, really? Like, uh, let me, let me awesome. talk about my buddy Ray. Whatever success he has, I love it. His book's a monster smash book. Awesome. I love that. You guys have created this awesome, uh, you know, Disrupt TV. Fantastic. All these events. You know, Ray, Ray's gone out there and created from scratch a legendary uh, research and think tank and consultancy and event. I don't, you know, all, all the awesomeness he sprinkles around the world, right? And he's making a bunch of money doing it and he's hired a bunch of great people and he's making an impact in the world. So when I see Ray, you know, his book going off the charts and, and the events and all the stuff going on, I don't sit here and go, oh man. Uh, I don't even do any of my own events. That makes me, uh, and, I, and I envy Ray. No, that makes me go, F yeah, Ray, go, right? And so that's the, that's the first piece. If you're going to be surrounded by people who are, are committed, who support you in being the most legendary version of yourself you can be, why would you want to be with anybody else? So now to get to the different piece, here's the interesting aha. Every innovator, every creator, Every designer, every artist, every architect, uh, every builder that you can think of, any, cre any creator of any kind, the, we the reason we respect them, the reason we admire them uh, is because they broke or took new ground. And when you start to look at it, whether it's inside the realm of business and technology or talk about music you know we're about to have don felder on my podcast from the eagles i can't wait uh, or any other domain right uh, who are the people that we look to uh, as real leaders well um, we all know who bob marley is we don't know who the 37th greatest reggae band in the world was why because Bob is the guy who brought reggae to the world. He's, he's in, in, in the way I think about it, he designed or created the category of reggae. He pioneered it for others. You know, my favorite band are the Ramones. They are the pioneers of a new genre of rock music called punk rock. And if you read any of the history of the Ramones, what you find out is in the early days, when they would come to a town, after they left, there'd be a massive amount of new bands created, yeah. right? And so they inspired a whole generation of music behind them. And so my point is, if you look at it in that sort of domain, or then you say in business, why do we all love Steve Jobs so much? Well, he's the godfather of the personal computer movement, and he's certainly the creator of what today we call the smartphone and many other things along the way, right? Why do we respect and admire the guys who founded uh, Netflix? they created a whole new model and then they kept innovating off that model and they kept bringing new innovations forward. And so what's my point? The people who make the biggest difference are focused on things that are incremental, not incremental and better, but exponential and different. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for the incrementally better. There is. But for many of us, the pathway to personal fulfillment and professional success is stepping out of the incremental better and swinging for it with the exponential different. And I believe we live at a time where we need more exponential different than ever before, whether that's in the technology world, in the entrepreneurship world, we're at the lowest level of recorded uh, entrepreneurship in recorded American history. The Wall Street Journal three years ago said we have a crisis in American entrepreneurship. It hardly gets talked about. It's not being talked about in this election cycle on either side and it pisses me off, right? And so now's the time for people to step up and harness the exponential different. And then on, on the other side of it is, whether we like it or not, you guys are great examples. To be successful today, you do have to stand out. You have to be known, right? You have to be respected. I don't like this word influencer because I think it's BS. We can talk about why if you care. But you have to be respected as somebody who's a creator, a contributor, a result producer, and somebody who's an expert in your field, right? And so... The aha there is the most successful careers, just like the most successful businesses, are known for a niche that they own. And owning a niche is all about bringing something exponentially different as opposed to incrementally better to the table. 
Uh, the outro music is playing. We're sadly out of time. Play bigger and niche down. Uh, best-selling author, Christopher Lockhead, author and host of the podcast, Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, a top five podcast on Apple. You can follow him on Twitter, Lockhead, and come see him at Constellations Connected Enterprise on Tuesday, I think, November 6th. That's right there. Or maybe that's Wednesday, November 7th. I'll figure it out. It's Wednesday, November 6th, something like that. Hey, thanks for being on the show. We'll talk to you some more. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Is, is any wonder why his podcast is so good? You can listen to him all day, all night. It's, it's the so mic, dude. We got to get a better mic. It is. It's, it's all about <laughs> nothing to do with the content. Nothing to do with the awesome branding. Yeah. It's the mic. Maybe we need better backgrounds. Speaking of exponentially better, our final guest, one of our favorite guests, and and uh, in the future, perhaps even the co-host of Disrupt TV. He's so good. Holger Mueller, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Holger provides strategy and content. Hey, we have, we have no time for intros, Vala. No time, all right, no, we have no time. But follow Holger on Twitter at H-O-L-G-E-R-M-U. He's a great follow on Twitter. Okay, welcome, Holger. Welcome back to Disrupt TV. Holger's we have time for hurry. mentioning Twitter, no question, yeah. Holger is in a hurry. Holger's in a hurry about acceleration. So let's start there. Like, what is this, right? You've been talking about enterprise acceleration. You keep talking about this, and you're talking about infinite computing on top of enterprise acceleration. Wow. Uh, these are some big concepts. Yeah. Well, enterprise acceleration is important. Well, thanks for being here. First of all, it's great, and always good to skip the intro going forward now, right? So <laughs> enterprise acceleration is really important. But wait, first, uh, for, for a pre-host for... for um, Mr. Lockheed, right? Remember this guy where I'm trying to imitate the accent right now, who's been elected into office with, who am I, Vala? I'll be back. Hasta <laughs> yeah. la vista, baby. Terminator, Terminator. Right, exactly. So this guy, Schwarzenegger, was his governor, right? And only the Constitution kept him from potentially going further. So we have not been so far from having an actor in the White House, right? That's the least political thing before going to enterprise acceleration, trying to connect the segments here, right? Yes, so yes. Companies have to... <laughs> I don't know how you're going to do this, but go for it. <laughs> and Ronald Reagan, let's not forget Ronald Reagan, but okay, yes. How, how could we, right? <laughs> actor become governor, right? This is the path through California for okay. actors, right? Okay. So Schwarzenegger was right on Reagan's footsteps, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we think talk about the Ukraine, not that we don't love the Ukraine, but yeah, okay, good. It was a comedy actor, that's the new thing, right? We had a general Western actor, we had, a, we had an action hero, and now we have a comedian in the Ukraine as a president. But and a reality TV star, and a reality TV star. Let's not forget Apprentice. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So enterprise acceleration. Companies have to move faster all the time, right? That's not something new. The exciting or interesting thing is right now that we sit on capabilities of the technology, which all of a sudden, Christopher said, or Chris, I forgot what he preferred, is that it's exponential. It's exactly, it's exponential, right? And start with the things which are, are really to understand or which we all operate on automatically, which is uh, that, that the lowest level of that is infinite and I can't read everything anymore, so I have to dodge this, right? Infinite connectivity, right? Uh, what is this? <laughs> right? right? This was a flashy way to, to infinite connectivity 20 years ago. Is that ago. a razor? Take it for granted. Is that a flip phone? Like, how yeah, is that is that oh, this, is, this one, this one is the flip phone, which might even have a comeback. Come on, what is this? It's a razor. Is it the exactly Nokia? the StarTech well, razor, whatever, right? So no, no, StarTech came first. StarTech came first. Okay, well, you can go. It's, it's it's a razor. It's a razor. It's a razor. Absolutely <laughs> right, right. So you 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 were putting your age on. Why don't you have any gray hair, Ray? So, but okay. So I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Well, I don't I get enough stress in this job. I, I don't is, get but... enough stress in this job. <laughs> I need to know the secret. But anyway, so we take it for granted that we can do this with uh, Ray sitting in Frankfurt, Manish before coming in London, that we have this inter infinite connectivity coming from that and business model, everything's running and we take it for granted. I use that as an example to get used to it. The next level is infinite question and answers, right? And that's where my friend comes in. <laughs> right? The most famous prop. Who is this? Who is this? Come on, Ray. This is Duck Cutting Sung Toy, a replica of one of the first 100 handed out by Cloudera. This is the elephant named Hadoop. Hadoop, thank you, Ray. Hadoop. You're still awake in Frankfurt. Excellent. I'm pulling everything out here in the last 10 minutes, right? It's so the Hadoop elephant. I, I was waiting first... for Vala to jump in or you to jump in. I, was... no, no, no. I want the audience to be in suspense. Yeah. For, for the first time, right? For the radio Hadoop. audience, Hadoop. it's a yellow elephant that is yeah. symbolizing a. <laughs> 
basically how you store things in Apache, which is basically a, a, you know, how you store data sets across distributed yeah, clusters. Yeah. So, 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 so Doug anyways, whatever. Was, <laughs> was creating as a major contributor to Hadoop. And uh, at the end of the day, he was thinking, I have to give it a name. And the son was playing with a stuffed elephant, which looked exactly like this. This is an authentic replica, one of 100. It's on here, right? So somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if that can go on AM uh, talk radio, but fine. <laughs> and and, and he, the, his son called the stuffed elephant Hadoop. And this is why Hadoop is really the power thing of the second layer you see behind me, which is infinite answers and questions, which means for the first time, enterprises can store everything that's electronically available for them. May it be artifacts, right? Things which are really important, my system of record, my, my log data, or maybe exhaust, right? Things where, where people have clicked on. Normally I wouldn't even store it, but now I can store it and I can ask questions without knowing what I wanted to answer at the time where I stored it, right? Because the previous technology was a data warehouse where it would took you in the best case, two, three days to change something, typically two, three weeks. If you were doing anything fundamental, like I want to figure out what's happening in Europe after being in the US, it would take you two, three months to get this done, right? This is gone, this is answered. We don't take it for granted yet in enterprise software because guess what? Most enterprise software vendors are not using this. There's very few of them who establish a data lake to put their information on there. So this is really cutting edge, unfortunately, for most enterprises from a total perspective. Right? The next one here, dodging again, infinite computing, right? That's what the cloud enabled us, right? I didn't bring the prop for that. I should have shown you a Netflix logo. Why? Remember when Netflix had the $1 million competition for suggesting the next best thing? Right? And yeah, was it was amazing. Guess who won? Science. Yeah, yeah, guess who won, right? I was coming out of the data science community where like all the data scientists were crunching it. Everybody wanted to do it with their model, right? If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The guy who won was a developer who took all 30 algorithms and ran all of them and took the one was best and couldn't even explain why it was the best one. So cheap compute. <laughs> It's getting rid of the data scientists, which they don't like to hear, right? But cheap compute allows what's running ensemble models. I can throw anything analytical to a problem and use the one which is best. And the art is really to find models that predict models to be used at a certain time. That's where the data scientists are still needed for. So it's not that totally big, but that's the third layer infinite compute. And on top of that comes weaving again, infinite machine learning, which allows companies to run this in a structured, not human-led, not human-run way, of course. And on top of that, which you can leave with no weaving on top of my head here, is infinite deep learning, which brings all of this together, right? We have the new business models with infinite compute. We can store all the information because all of this machine learning AI doesn't make sense if you don't have the data. I have to be able to store all data. I have to store the garbage, right? That could be a conversation with Ray and me for hours here. If I have to know before or not to know, I say, no, never not store something which you could use later, right? One man's gold is another man's garbage and vice versa. And then it comes together with the cheap compute from the cloud. That's, that's the interesting thing. And this needs infinite platforms because when I build this, oh, well, this is mirror, um, which, which allows companies <laughs> to run and move and integrate these pieces and run their applications on top of that, right? So that's the infinite story in for fin finite minutes. So Holger, we, we, we often hear um, people compare oil and data uh, when they talk about economic growth and potential um, and and but oil is finite resource and data is infinite. So where does infinite data fall into your hierarchical uh, structure behind you? It's, it's, it's running through the infinite computing part for connectivity part, right? That's the connection of everything, right? And it's being stored on the second level, right? The good news is the technology is there, right? This is like you you found the first way of oil and you figured out the complete distribution of oil to revolutionize transport. But oil, I mean, it's a great analogy, was revolutionary for transport and other power parts of the question. But into artificial intelligence, machine learning, I think we can agree on this right away, is so much more impactful for society than a new means of transportation. Can I, I, mean, can I just follow okay. up with something? So we've been trained, we've been taught, at least I, I was for a long time, to measure influence and power and career trajectory in terms of collecting resources. So the lifeblood of a company is the resources and then controlling the resources. And in this digital economy, it seems like what's really more powerful or what we should be thinking about is the flow of resources, mm -hmm. being able to capture data and analyze and glean insights that could hopefully create near real-time opportunities for us to add value to our stakeholders. So it's the pumps, like the heart and the lungs in your system yep. that get oxygen and blood throughout your body. They're not storing resources. They're, they're, the nutrients are getting from top to bottom. 
And businesses today seem to be capture and control rather than thinking about the relationship between departments is more important than the department itself. So it's the flow of resources. So does infinite flow belong in your, in your, your architecture to speak to really a muscle that companies need to develop to stay healthy and relevant? Yeah, no, no, absolutely right. Com Enterprise have always been about consuming resources. It was always a path through, right? Nothing lasts forever. You buy resources, you manufacture something to sell it. You don't want to keep on to it, right? Then there's a thing which stay with you, like capital as one way financially and human capital, which of course I love because I cover that, right? But but very important aspect, but it's always about the throughput. So it's about the maximum velocity I can run as an enterprise. Yeah. And what do I do? Velocity. So speed and direction. Of course, of course, I need to know what I'm doing. And the biggest problem of enterprises, I talk about a long time, is they're, ca they're caught in the efficiency prison, right? Efficiency is, are we doing things right? Mm. Yeah, so squeeze a little bit more out, get a faster server, get a new application, two, 3% is fine. They optimize, they optimize their scale, and they're in a prison where they can't change that, right? They have to ask when the technology changes like we have for the first time, which I'm trying to say with infinite computing, right? They have to ask the effectiveness question, which is, are we doing the right thing? Right. And that's where the disruption happens when you realize, oh, or does someone else realize, there's a better new thing to do this right. Yeah, and we all hear about the examples, which you don't have to mention, powered by the new technology, right? Changing the throughput, changing the flow, not owning everything in that transport. Uh, can, example, if you take the taxis versus Ubers. Right. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, that's exactly right. So when I, when I look at the, the capabilities behind you and I see the companies that are doing well, they are in the business of removing friction. So they're thinking about fluid dynamics. They're thinking about flow. And by, in a flow design business, the relationship between the departments, the pumps, is more important than the department itself. So how sales, service, marketing, exchange insights to create value and delight stakeholder, that process, that circulatory system of the business is, is more valuable than the department itself. And I think that's, I think what I see in trailblazers or companies that are really yep really delivering that CX, that customer experience that, that, that's differentiated from, the, from their competitors. Anyway, well, sorry, Ray. <laughs> when, 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 no, absolutely right. When, when you're transforming, right, your static setup, but you mentioned the word departments, right, divisions, whatever, yeah. of the past, which might have made you successful in the multi-building company, is not the right one for the future. Right. Your ability to move people around, right? I give you one example on the HR side, right? I'm long advocate to the talent depth chart, right? Yeah. It's ridiculous that today, Let's just make the easy case. Inside of my employee base, I do not know if I have the best people who are working for me right, right now on the right job, right? I don't want anybody to leave where I could do a mini reorg of two people switching places, getting more out of them. They are happy and I still can't tell. It's still a mystery, right? So talking about right. human capital and the flow, I can't even do this for the existing one. Now I should be able to technology, right? Think about Facebook and LinkedIn. I should be finding, hey, there's somebody better for that job with yes. more fluidity outside maybe, right? Yes. I should be able to look inside and say, what can I do to train this person to the next job, to come up to speed, to improve 100%. their speed and so on. Then I should be able to say, whoa, this is not gonna be a permanent job, right? This is gonna go away. I don't want to hire someone internally, internally. I'm gonna get a contractor who knows that he or she is gonna work for only three quarters, months, hours and so on, right? And I can't play this, right? And the technology for this is there. It's really a challenge. To the software, and it's amazing. We were, think about new best practices and enable them. We're, we're brought to you by Home Advisor today. Um, no, just kidding. Anyways, uh, hey, we'll talk to you about autonomous software operations next time. We're here with Holger Mueller. He's the vice president and principal analyst here at Constellation Research. At one time, he led the biggest operations of data scientists in San Diego with Fair Isaac. He can't tell me he's on an in NDM, the US. In the US, okay, just in the US. He can, he, he shy, can tell right? me how these Fair Isaac scores work. I have any of my FICO scores, but anyways, you can follow him on Twitter at Holger Mueller, H O L G E R M U. We're going to have to wrap soon. Talk about what is going on on episode 165. Thanks. Wait, 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 wait. We, we have to have the t-shirt tradition, right? So today, in the spirit of spinning, right? So That's right. <laughs> Listen, I love it when you come on the show. We never have enough time. Please come back. You're an amazing uh, thought leader, and I always learn from you. So thank you. Any, anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. So next week's show, episode 165, Bill Shanninger, senior partner of McKinsey Company and author of Beyond Performance 2.0, Doug Henshin, repeat 
uh, expert and thought leader and vice president principal analyst at Constellation Research. He's going to talk about analytics. And a special guest to be named. We'll and see what happens. And a special guest to be named for episode 165. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Ray, closing remarks. Hey, thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks for being on the show. Make sure you catch us on Constellation Connected Enterprise. Uh, it's it's uh, November 5th through 6th, 7th, 7th, and we'll see you there in Half Moon Bay. So we are out of time. See you, everybody. Happy Friday. Bye.